I'm going to ask that we all bow our heads in prayer. Just start rattling off all the bad things I've done until you get tired of hearing about them or what? I'm going to talk to you about the judge of the fatherless. Uh, I'm sure he doesn't mean to be so difficult, Mrs. Cleaver. It's just that he's at the age where he doesn't realize how important it is to keep a promise. Which Bible stories you want to hear? He's just a Sunday school. Thanks, Dad. Well, I'm pleased to uh, welcome back to the podcast of the Faith of the Fathers, uh, my friend Jerry Mullins. Thanks for joining me again today, Jerry. Uh, I've asked Jerry to come back on the podcast because we uh, we had a conversation you shared with us about the forgotten founding father, George Whitfield, because Jerry works as a tour guide in Newburyport, Massachusetts, at the Old South Church where George Whitfield ministered for many years. And in our last podcast, we talked about how George Whitfield's preaching, uh, if without that, it's likely that the American Revolution would never have happened. And today I wanted to have you back on to talk specifically about the Great Awakening that George Whitfield was part of, because there are many people today who are talking about a Great Awakening. Uh, there are many memes throughout social media um, about a Great Awakening, many times associated with Donald Trump or Q or all sorts of things that are going on. And I think a lot of people have different ideas about what a Great Awakening is, what it looks like. Um, and I don't even, I, I have my own ideas, but I don't know if there's one definition for a Great Awakening. But George Whitfield lived through and was part of a, a real, a true Christian revival that we call um, the Great Awakening. And I'd like for you, Jerry, just to tell us like what that was, how it came about, how George Whitfield played a part in it, and then maybe toward the end we can talk about how we might partner with God and what he's doing today. So um, that's that's the plan. So I'm going to let you take it away, Jerry. Uh, just uh, just tell us about this guy, George Whitfield, and the Great Awakening. Well, one of the key things that we do in our tour is that we remind people that we have to get our minds back in those days. And if we try to change or, or interpret history uh, the way we are viewing things now, then the whole the whole tour narration on at Old South is falls flat because it was a totally different world. It was a British colony and so and it was in the British Empire. And so it was a a European mindset that we are alien to. Thanks to Whitfield, by the way. <laughs> and because of his ministry, now we think a totally different way. And so when he was um the, the real way to get the viewpoint is to look at uh, his uh, the start of his of his ministry, and he had, of course had been just a uh, grown up in the Bell Inn in Gloucester, England, and which was rip and roaring type of a tavern atmosphere, and but he wanted to grow up to be an actor, and but then he had this opportunity to go to Pembroke College at Oxford as a working student cleaning dorms and and serving food for to the other students. And so while he was there, he encountered a, a group of very religious students who had this oddball idea that if they were to have long prayer and lots of fasting and a very, very procedural worship 
technique that they could please God and receive eternal life. Well, George wanted to really, really wanted to please God. So he took their principles. By the way, the other students made fun of him and called him Methodist. And, and so that's how the, the whole word Methodist got to be because they were so methodical in their approach. But George, he went out and he prayed long prayers. And he would do it in all types of weather, pleading to God to try to get some kind of approval. And he'd be uh, in rainstorms or in sunny days or out in the parks or inside a house. He was just constantly praying. And then he got himself really in trouble when he started doing fasting. Long periods of time to the point where it began to affect his health. And Charles, one of the other members of the Holy Club, told him, you know, George, you need to cool down on this. Take it easy. But he really wanted to please God so he could receive eternal life. So he was fasting long periods of time to the point where he got so sick that they had to rush doctors in to minister to him. And then he got to the point where he really had to go back to Gloucester and go there to recuperate. So when he left, Charles, uh, one of the Holy Club members, gave him a book by Henry Skugel. It was The Life of God in the Soul of Man. So while he's in bed convalescing there in Gloucester, he reads this thing that the Henry Skugel is basically saying, all you got to do is repent of your sins and accept Christ who already paid on the cross for your sins, and then you will receive eternal life. And Whitfield couldn't believe it. He says, it can't be that simple. But he, he kept reading on, and then when he finally understood completely, he went back to Pembroke College, and in his dorm room, he got on his knees and accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior. And it, he went from being a sick, miserable student to being a powerful minister of God, the Holy Spirit filled him, and then he just got so excited that even before he graduated, which was common in England, was to go out into parks and get on a soapbox and, and talk about some topic. He would go out there and he would preach about the new birth. And at first, people in the park would just make fun of him. But he had such a presentation that even people began to accept Christ right there in the parks. So can and I then, stop you for one minute, Jerry, just as you... because. Some people might not get this, that the whole time George Whitfield was being very religious, very devout, fasting, praying, doing everything, he was still miserable. But now, mm -hmm. now he was, he, there was life in him. And that was the message that he was preaching, was that just repent of your sins and receive. That was the new message, correct? That was the new message, the new birth. And, and you got to the heart of the problem, because... In England, everybody was being religious. Everybody had to go to church. And the churches were filled with people who were very ceremonial and doing all the other things that you would do in the Anglican church. But spiritually, they were dead. And so, you know, everybody wanted to fit in and do the normal religious routine, but it was just rote. There was nothing in the heart. So he got so excited. And then God intervened. Now, in the book of Acts, it talks about Paul getting arrested in Israel and having to go and be literally dragged on the Roman dime all the way over to Rome to appear before the emperor for an appeal. And a lot of the other Christians in that time felt it was terrible that he was being arrested. But this was because God was intervening. Next thing he knows, 
by the time he got to Rome, he was no more than 100 yards away from the emperor. And they, he was surrounded by the Praetorian Guard. And he was able to come and reach the very higher levels of the Roman Empire in Rome, thanks to him being in prison. So God has strange ways of... All right, so we had a, a technical difficulty there, but we're back. Jerry, you were telling us about the strange ways that God was moving in George Whitfield's life. Right. Well, I was talking about Apostle Paul in the scriptures, how he ended up being in a disastrous way, being uh, imprisoned by the Romans. But it ended up being a, an advancement for the gospel, because by the time he got to Rome, he ended up converting many of the Praetorian Guard. So that in some historical records shows that 30 years, just 30 years with no internet, no transportation like we have today. There were so many Christians in Rome that they, it, the Roman authority began to take great notice. And that was just 30 years after the resurrection of Christ. So the same thing happened in Whitfield's indication. Now, he's still at, at Pembroke College, and a friend of his was the chaplain at the King's Chapel. Now, if anybody goes to, to London and goes visits the Tower of London, to the left is the Queen, or now today, of course, is the King's residence when they're, in, in, when they're doing something that has to do with the Tower of London and the crown jewels and such. And so over there, right next to it, is the King's Chapel. And that was where the King or Queen would actually go and have their worship service. And it was sparsely populated because in those days, Many preachers just read read a text during the sermon, or they were very somber and very holy and very worshipful. And so you usually end up having to put toothpicks in your eyes to stay awake. So that even the King's Chapel was sparsely populated. So Whitfield prayed about it. He was agonizing over this because he felt so unworthy. But he went ahead and attended and became the chaplain. And all of a sudden, his booming presentation and the power of the Holy Spirit began to work and all of a sudden it was standing room only in the King's Chapel and word got spread now now it wasn't spread amongst the common folk it was spread amongst the lords and ladies it was spread amongst, amongst the nobility all of a sudden word about Whitfield began to spread all over London and he hadn't even graduated yet and so other churches began to want to have him come over and so they invited him to come up because of all of what they had heard. And so a revival, the Great Awakening, actually began in England, spreading all over London. He even got a chance to put in the London Times a whole presentation about the new birth. And then it, it spread to, the, to Wales and went off into Scotland. And his fame began to accelerate rather rapidly. Now, in the meantime, John and Charles Wesley members of the Holy Club had graduated and went to, on a ship and went over to Savannah, Georgia to Christ Church and they were going to be the pastor and associate pastor. Well, they're still doing this Methodist thing with the elaborate worship and all the others. They're still in the flesh. Well, while they're ministering there, they got in trouble. And they literally, because they got in trouble with some powerful families over there, had to book out in the middle of the night and get on a ship and head back to England. <laughs> they literally fled. And so, and well, meantime, Whitfield's over in London 
he's thinking, you know, I would like to join John and Charles over there at Savannah. So he signs up on a ship, but the ship is delayed. So while it's delayed, the revival is getting larger and larger and more people coming to Christ. There's more revival going on all across the whole spread of England. And so finally the ship is ready. This is how God planned it. He gets down to the, the port, gets on the ship, and he takes off for Georgia. Hours later, John and Charles Wesley get off the ship. And they find this huge revival going on. And they haven't even come to Christ yet. And so first Charles, Charles realized that he needed to be converted. And then John Wesley has this whole thing about how he came to Christ. Now you've got two guys who are now powered by the Holy Spirit. And God had it all planned out because John Wesley was an organizer. He knew how to lead people. And he began to organize Methodist churches all over England. So in the meantime, Whitfield is back in Christ Church. He finds that the that those two had gone, so he becomes the pastor there. Now, in the meantime, a yellow fever had struck, and there were so many orphans all over Georgia. So he began to organize the Seda or- Orphanage to take care of these orphans. In the meantime, he also went and went over to... Uh, some of the other colonies because he was so fascinated with the British colonies that he actually began to have outdoor rallies all the way up to Philadelphia. Now his reputation began to precede him because people would get off the ship from, from England and talk about this man. And so the word spread around that he was quite so that when he got to a town, people knew about it and he'd only been there for a few months. Well, he finally went all the way up to Philadelphia and there he encountered um, ben Franklin and Ben Franklin actually in his autobiography talks about the transformative effect that Whitfield had on the whole city that people were, were singing hymns scriptures, praising God and Ben Franklin he took notice he said this is fantastic so he made sure he was friends with with Whitfield now after only being there a year he goes back to Savannah he gets on a ship and he returns to England. When we get off the board, he finds out all this, all this organization of Methodist churches are all over the place. Well, you have to understand, John and Charles are like, man, this is the guy who started the whole thing. And so they sort of a little threatened. So they said, why don't you go back to the colonies and go back there and be a missionary? Well, he resisted on that because, of course, this was the whole thing was started by him. So he began to pray about it, though, and God said, go. So he got on a ship, and he returned back to the New World. First, he went briefly to Philadelphia, where he was well-received. And then after a brief visit there, he went off to London, I mean, something London, Boston, to start his ministry. So he gets to Boston. His reputation is already well-established. He gets off that ship. And he had an outdoor rally at the Boston Common of 21,000 people. And there were always, there was only 17,000 people in Boston. So they came from all around the suburbs to listen to him. And so the other churches, of course, they because he's famous, so they want them all to come and preach in their pulpits. 
So he starts to go and make a circuit of all the different churches. Now, this is where you have to understand he's 25 years old. He finds something in New England that was not in England. Every minister was a tax collector. You went to church. That guy who up there was preaching to you would one day be knocking on your door for your money. Because everybody had to be in Sunday church. No, doesn't matter if you're a Muslim or an atheist or a drunken sailor or a wealthy merchant. Everybody had to be in church to pay your pew tax. Very important. And so you came to church. You had to be in church. Well, they had a situation where since everybody had to be in church anyway, what was called the halfway covenant. And this was that if you were there, your children could be infant baptized into the church and become a full member, partake of the Lord's Supper, have full membership privileges. And so after a couple generations of this setup, Whitfield comes and finds out that three-fourths of the congregation has never had a personal relationship with Christ. And this was a real problem to him. But then he got himself in trouble. He found out the most of the ministers had never had a relationship with, with Christ. They were up there with their long flowing robes, standing in front of all these people, and they never had, were actually not really Christians. They were just there because it was the thing to do, be a minister. Well, he began to say quite famously, dead men cannot beget living children. And he began to rail on these ministers. Now, you basically, he's telling people of great prominence that they're wicked sinners and they're going to hell. And they were outraged. All of a sudden, he wasn't being invited to the churches anymore. The doors were slamming shut. And they were just furious with him. Some of them even threatened to throw him in jail for slander. Instead of saying, well, listen, I'll, I guess I'll come to Christ. Oh, no. In fact, one guy, his name was Chauncey. Uh, he got in the in the Boston Globe and wrote, how dare he say I must be born again. They were just furious. So he wore out his welcome, and he had to leave Boston. So he headed north to Ipswich. So there was a little and, which is about, gap in the uh, um, connection. You said, how dare he say I must be born again? Exactly. Hmm. Right in the Boston Globe. <laughs> and so he had worn out his welcome in Boston. He had to head north. So about 20 miles north is Ipswich. And so he went there and had a huge outdoor rally. And many, many people came to Christ. And great, great thing with the Lord really worked. And then he went faithfully to Newburyport. And he arrived September 30th, 1740. Now, in the center of town was the third parish, and it was called the First Religious Society of Newburyport. And Reverend Lowell was the pastor. And Reverend Lowell had heard all about Whitfield, so he said, come on in, famous London preacher. So he came into that church, and about 156 people came to Christ that day. And this is out of a congregation of about 800 and then he goes over to First Parish. That was where the first settlers had gone. It was a country church, about 300, 350 people. 
He goes in there and 64 people come to Christ. And then Whitfield gets up and leaves. He's going from town to town, church to church. So in our minds, picture that. Brand new baby Christians. And they're surrounded by Puritans. Now, you, that's is where you get your mind back in those days. And this is where we have to jump. You see, Oliver Cromwell established a republic in England, and he was a Puritan. And they were so sour and so conformist in their religious practice. that the, And they also banned Christmas. They basically banned theater. They basically banned anything. People were so uptight so that when Oliver Cromwell died, all the king had to do was say, hey, listen, bring me back in power and we'll have parties again. We'll have Christmas again. And it was like a light switch. They went from being back from a republic back to being a monarchy. And so about a little bit later, the Puritans were being harassed because of all this. Five ships led by John Winthrop got up there and they left England and they went, guess where? New England. And they established the Boston Commonwealth Colony. Now, if you go to the Commonwealth Museum in South Boston, they, their very first exhibit talks about how John Winthrop and the, and the leaders there established. It was basically the same government as they have over in Iran. And it was a, theo, a theological setup. And they did not put with any dissent. And you had to conform completely to their religion. They would take Baptist preachers and put them in stocks, or they would throw them in prison or beat them. They, they took four Quakers and hung them. One a woman. And, you know, Quaker, basically a theological hippies, you know. And here it is, they hung them. I don't know about the Whitbrows. Everybody was bound up in this conformist nature. Well, here it is, Whitfield comes in. These people, a small portion of the congregation is converted. And they're not being extraordinarily unusual. They're just taking the scriptures and they're beginning to read the, the, the Bible. They're trying to follow after God. And here it is. The rest of the Puritans there are like, what is wrong with you? They're filled with the spirit. These new light people, they call them new lights. And the old lights were like, what is wrong with you? Something is odd. And so they began to call them enthusiasts. And that is the worst thing you could call anybody back in those days. If you get to the etymology of enthusiasm in the on the internet, you can go to Wikipedia. They'll tell you the original definition of enthusiast was a person who was basically a heretic, a religious freak, a cultist, and so the, and somebody who was unstable. So they were calling them these new lights enthusiasts, and they got so upset that they began to harass them. They wouldn't let them sell their goods at the local market because they were not conforming with the rest of the Puritans. And then Reverend Toppin, who was the pastor at the first parish, he got so mad at them that he put a whip on his belt. And he actually would go around, and when he encountered a new light, he'd curb their enthusiasm. And so this is the kind of harassment that they were getting. 
So eventually they couldn't put up with it anymore, the new lights. So 35 families left the first parish and the third parish, and they went to Joppa. Now, Newburyport has a little seaside community called Joppa, and it was a bad side of town because that was where the fishermen would dry their nets, and it stunk. And there was also tanneries down there. And everything's terrible. And they need seawater to process leather. So eventually, 35 families left those two churches and went and met in Simon the Tanner's house by the seaside. Now, if you look in the book of Acts, that was where Peter went down to Joppa and met in Simon the Tanner's house by the seaside. Saw the sheet come down, clean and unclean animals. Same thing happened. So they're over there. Well, not only did they call them new lights, they called them Joppaites. And you go into the New Report Public Library, there's a whole bunch of things about how people are getting down on the Joppaites because they were not conforming with the rest of the religious group. Well, more people fled those churches. And they kept growing to the point where they finally had to take uh, lumber from some of the participants' forests, and they went and built a log cabin chapel up on High Street, which is our main drag through our town of our town. Now, today, you go on High Street, it's just filled with mansions from the Federalist period. But that was where they had their log cabin chapel. So, five years later, Whitfield comes back. He's thinking to himself, I'm going to go to Reverend Lowell's church. and I'm going to go in there and preach. He gets into town, and the atmosphere is like you cut it with a knife. It was so tense. And so Reverend Lowell says, you're not coming into this church. You caused a church split. And Reverend Toppin, of course, Whitfield's very polite in his journal. Reverend Toppin would not even let him on his property. And so he looked around and he saw this log cabin chapel. So he goes over and stands out on High Street because whenever he has a rally, it's a huge crowd. They couldn't fit in the log cabin. And so he's out there preaching and he has his Bible and he's waving it in his hand. Well, while he's preaching, a rock comes flying and knocks the Bible out of his hand. Well, he's pretty quick with his wit. He reaches down, picks up that Bible. Waves it in the air and he goes, I have a warrant from God to preach and this seal is in my hand and I stand in the King's Highway. Well, High Street used to be called the King's Highway because it went all the way to Boston. So everybody knew what he was talking about. So after he was done, he goes into that, that log cabin chapel and the people said, we've been driven out of these other churches. What kind of a church should we have? So says, and he's an Anglican minister. He'll always be an Anglican minister. He says to them, I want you to be a Presbyterian church to secure your liberties. Now, what was he doing? Well, he was furious over the fact that the government had absolute control over those churches. Now, we know that in the Anglican church, the king is the head of the church. And he would that king would actually appoint the ministers, would appoint the churches. They would appoint the prayer book, all controlled by the king. Even the Bible, the King James Bible that we all hold so dear, was called the received. Because it wasn't received from God, it was received from King James. And so Whitfield wanted to teach people to not allow 
the government to interfere in the church. And so he would actually preach when that Bible was knocked out of his hand. That was a Geneva Bible. He wouldn't preach for the King James unless he had to. And so he ended up going and and uh, telling them to be a Presbyterian church. He also had another plan. Now, First John chapter 2, 24 and 25, it talks about how the Holy Spirit will fill you and that you may have no man need to teach you, but that the Spirit will lead you and direct you in your path. And so he believed that redeemed people, if they had an actual government like a republic, they would be able to do things according to what they cared about other neighbors, not themselves. Now, the last successful republic was the Roman Republic, and it failed because of narcissism. Everybody was caring about themselves. And so he felt that the Holy Spirit led a group of people in America that that would actually have the republic work. And the Presbyterian is a republic. You go to England today and you look in the textbooks, they call the American Revolution the Presbyterian Revolution. Because in a Presbyterian church, the pastor is the executive branch, and below they have this odd thing called a session, which is like a congress. And each elder represents different sectors of the congregation. So what he would do is he would go to a church, uh, community for 30 years now. Think about 30 years. He would then preach in a church. The ministers would get angry. He would then go ahead and... Uh, come back later and find out that they had all split with all the new lights he would then organize the new lights into Presbyterian churches all across the colonies now many of them became Baptist independent, separatist, brethren constantly complained that his chickens were turning into goats ducks the ducks and uh, so he, he began to have this influence all across the different colonies now this pattern began to orient people, one, to get the government out of the church. And it took a while, even when the Declaration of Independence was, they were still doing this thing where everybody had to be in church to get your pew tax. It took a while for them, about 1810, 1812, but finally, finally got it out of our system where the government has no influence on the church. So the liberals try to make it out like church shouldn't have any influence on the government. Whitfield's attitude was, get that government out of, allow the Holy Spirit to reign, not, not the king. And so it's a totally different separation of, of, of the two. And so his influence was such that now Americans think it's just obvious that you don't have any influence. Now, you, go to, you think of Bernie Sanders. He was telling everybody that the Scandinavian countries are socialist. And they all up there had press conferences saying we're not socialist. Every one of them has, except for Finland, who just got rid of them, uh, have kings, God-appointed kings that rule over them. And England, of course, is still set up the same way, where somehow that God has specially appointed a king. We in America think it's just crazy that you would have some special group that would be divinely appointed to God. We now understand that every citizen can be a minister ministering from the Holy Spirit to do what's right. Now, the funny thing about Ben Franklin, he never accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior. Oh, Whitfield worked on him so hard. But 
Ben Franklin recognized that religion and and the whole in Christian influence was transforming the community. So oftentimes you'll have people who don't want to go so far as accepting Christ, but also believe that somehow we have a responsibility to do what's good for the community in America. And it's unique. It's so unique from what's over in Europe. And they look at over here in America and they just marvel at the average person out there who who actually believes in benefiting the community, not just themselves. And that is a transformative foundation for America. That's how the Great Awakening got started. Now, another way that Great Awakening started, I'm sorry to talk about all this. I didn't know. (laughs) I get excited about this. Yeah. Is that, that what happened was we had the BBC here briefly in 2017. And they were following the footsteps of Whitfield on the European side and on the American side. And they happened to be in Philadelphia and they had talked to a national park ranger, a secular national park ranger. And I want to stress that, who said that if it wasn't for Whitfield, we would never have heard of Ben Franklin. So what happened? Well, Ben Franklin had left Boston, went down to Philadelphia, opened up a printing press and a newspaper. And he was, the competition was too much. He had to basically go out of business. He had creditors banging on the door saying, you owe me money. He was in desperation. Then one fateful day, he put one of Whitfield's sermons in his newspaper and they all got sold. Well, maybe it's a fluke. He put another one of Whitfield's sermons in and every newspaper was sold. So now he's thinking it's my crafty Ben Franklin. Ah, I'm a friend of Whitfield. So he approaches Whitfield and he says, listen, when you go to a church and you preach a sermon, don't put that sermon in the Bible, stip it into the leaves, mail it to me. Now he's thinking this. Well, Whitfield knew it right away that the Twitter and Facebook of that day were newspapers. And he said, wow, yes, I will. And so as a social media pioneer, Whitfield would then take his sermons. He would then preach in a church. He would then mail it. And oftentimes he would preach three times in a day. He would mail it to Whitfield, to uh, Ben Franklin. And Ben Franklin would then put it in his newspapers and spread it all across. Well, Ben Franklin got so wealthy from that that he ended up having franchises in all the way down to Georgia, all the way up to Maine. And then he took all of Whitfield's sermons, put them in a book, edited by Ben Franklin, and sold it. Now, this was long before New York Times existed. So it would, But if it was New York Times existed today, it would be a bestseller. It was sold right off the racks. Now, this summer, I was just talking about that to, to an author who was writing a new book on Whitfield. And she says, I've got that book. So she sent that book to us. So it's in our archives now. We're very excited. (laughs) The old rascal Ben Franklin spreading the gospel. And so it ended up that he was able to retire when he was 42 and become a scientist, diplomat, bring the French into the war to sign our founding documents. And all because of him being a friend of Whitfield, spreading the gospel. Now, a a recent historian back about 2018 wrote 
that 80% of the Americans from Georgia to Maine either saw him, read him, or heard him. So that he was the greatest celebrity, the, the first great celebrity that America had when at the time of his death in 1770. So all the founding fathers, John Adams, George Washington, um, uh, Patrick Henry, who was a good friend of Whitfield, all of them looked back at Whitfield, knew all about him, praised his work. And when people tried to slander, Ben Franklin would furiously defend him, his integrity and his character. So that, when you know, when he first got to, when we first built our building in 1756 at Old South, there was a door there that had a tree next to it. And when Whitfield first began his ministry, a, a local news reporter got up on the tree and peed on Whitfield. And oftentimes when Parsons, the first minister, and, and Whitfield would go back to the parsonage, they would get stoned on the way from the church to the parsonage, which was three doors down. Well, 30 years later, when Whitfield would show up in a town, the entire town would empty itself out. Mass of thousands would come out to hear him. So even though the Great Awakening only lasted from 1737 to about 1745, 47, somewhere in that period, sort of died out because there was such animosity by these ministers who were so angry that they were not, that he kept kicking out the uh, Whitfield. So the, the, the Great Awakening died out, but Whitfield just kept plugging away. And kept influencing all the, the colonies so that by the time he got there, the gospel won out. And no and the old ways of doing things, it just religious formality perished. Yeah. Yeah, that's profound. I, I've been writing down some of the things that that I've been hearing in this about what kind of things that we need to have um to be ready for if we want to see a great awakening. One, I think this is a central one, is understanding the real message of the gospel, which you've you've alluded to a couple of times, just that, you know, um, Whitfield's message was not being religious. He was really confronting the spirit of religion in the Puritan that the Puritan culture um, created, and um, and he got persecuted by the religious. Which is yeah an interesting thing. There are a lot of people. Um, I think of Greg Locke uh, today, who is uh, getting persecuted by people inside and outside of the church because of some of the things that he's doing. And yet, I think God is God is with them in that. But I wanted to ask you because for someone who's maybe they don't really get it, they don't really get the gospel, they don't really get what is the spirit of religion. What do you mean by that? It sounds like the Great Awakening was the effect of a charismatic man is it the man or the messenger or is it something different or a combination of both i think what happened was it wasn't just since god was behind us it's not just one man uh for example shubal stearns was a convert of whitfield and he was from boston and Shubal Stearns went down and established Baptist churches around Rhode Island. And then he went to North Carolina, and he was like a, a church factory. He just produced one church after another, spreading all over North Carolina. And then 
because the Anglican Church raises money through the churches, they began to persecute the Baptists down there, and they spread. They just like in the Book of Acts talks about them fleeing from Jerusalem, going off to other towns, and spreading the gospel. The same thing happened in the South. The Baptists spread all over the South, so that the Southern Baptists became the largest denomination, all because of persecution, because they had to flee for their lives. The uh, four governor thrown there got so furious that there was no money going into the Anglican Church, which raised money for the colonies, that he had had the men, women, and children attacked by the army. And then he took four Baptist preachers and hung them. And the people fled for their lives and spread the, the Baptist denomination all over the South. So you wonder why is it so strong down there? It was all because of persecution. They were fleeing. They went into Tennessee and Alabama, Mississippi, Texas, trying to get away from the persecution that was being done in North Carolina. And so this kind of thing, it's one thing we have to understand. As we spread the gospel, we're going to get persecuted. Yeah. And we're going to feel about it. and We're going to get upset about it. But that's really a, a way that spreads the gospel even more as we stand firm for the, for the Lord. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I hear in that too that um, you know the Methodist Church is nothing like it, it was during the days of Whitfield and Wesley. Um, the you know every denomination it seems like the spirit of religion finds its way back in, and it seems to uh-huh. me that the the uh, Great Awakening is really about recognizing that and learning to reject that and learning to truly receive Jesus instead of a religion. Would you would you agree with that? Oh, 100%. You know, unfortunately, the Old South is connected with the Presbyterian PCUSA. And they are totally anti-Semitic. They are anti-Israel. They're, they're going at, they're, they're hobnobbing with, with uh, LGBT groups. They're, they're doing everything they can to go anti-Bible on the, on the de- denominational side. And fortunately, Old South... We own the building, so they can't do anything about that. Mm. Yeah. Well, praise and our God. church is part of, of that, so we can continue preaching the gospel without them coming in there and trying to corrupt us. And this is happening in the Methodists. The Methodists just had a big split, you know, and they were already in a bad way, but now even more of them are splitting off. It got to be so rancorous going up. And that that's what happened during the Great Awakening. So many of the of the mainline denominations that were in the uh, the colonies rejected this great awakening, which is why Whitfield had to go out into the fields and preach and end up organizing separate churches because they just would not accept his message. Uh, cutting off that spirit of religion seems to be a major thing. Also cutting off um, the dependency on the government um, you mentioned that uh, you know the taxes um, that the 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 government was using that as a way of uh, controlling the churches. Whitfield oh. uh, broke free from that. Today, I see a parallel in a five hundred one c three. Yes, very much that we're being controlled, and and we have to break break away from that as well. Uh, this newest act that the Congress is trying to pass, you know. Yeah. protect the merit, you know, or whatever it is called. 
that's actually going to try to, the government's going to go after the tax deferment of churches. Yeah. And so you're going to say, hey, you want to get your tax deferment or are you going to fall after the Lord? Yeah. You're going to get persecuted even I, worse now for the next two years. Yep. So it could be even more. We might as well cut it off right now and start uh, start living uh, on the edge for the Lord. Amen? Amen. <laughs> so there's also a hunger in the people, though. Like, you know, thousands of people, they're coming to hear Whitfield. Uh, they had churches to go to. They were obviously hungry for something more than what they were getting. Do you think that's true today? Oh, yes, Definitely. Do you see any of this um, at the Old South Church, which you said you're, you're maintaining your independence from the PCUSA, you have your own building, you're preaching the gospel. Are you seeing people respond to the gospel? Oh, yes, definitely. As long as we're true to the, to the Word of God, that's a central theme, is, is they have to have that personal relationship with Christ. Yeah. And all of everything else is just emptiness. It's just religious deadness if they don't do that. <laughs> so have you been seeing people come to the Lord in your community at the through the through the church ministry? Uh yes, and uh oftentimes what we do is, is we try to reach out to the to the community. Uh for when I first got to this church, they were very very introverted. They were almost like we minister uh, Pastor Singleton, who actually got them reoriented to reach out to the community. And so now we have uh, elderly ministry. We have into the nursing homes, which we have a lot of. And we have soups and sandwiches on Sunday. We have going into, you know, Newburyport is so fancy looking, you know, but it's really behind it. There's about 40% of the population is below poverty level. And so we have a, the Salvation Army is down here really busy and they have uh, soup kitchens and they have food banks. And so it's all hidden in the background, uh, but that's a great opportunity. And so we've actually had some increase in membership and coming to Christ through uh, doing basic just soups and sandwiches and reaching out to the, uh, the, the disadvantage here in, in, in Newburyport. And that's kind of the equivalent or, or something like the idea of going out into the field, going out to meet the people where they're at, rather than expecting them to come exactly. up to where you think they should be. Exactly. Yeah. And we're very accepting. church. We don't, we don't have a dress standard, you know, you know, you don't have these. I've been in churches because I've been all over the country. You go in there and, and some person in a pew will snicker at somebody who comes in who's who's not got super nice clothing on mm. and who's either been homeless or something. And, uh, and you know, you don't see that in our church, which is really healthy. So I don't know if it, uh, it's not traditionally um, in recent years, the Presbyterian denomination is not associated with uh, some of the more charismatic expressions of the church, deliverance ministry, or some strange manifestations of the Holy Spirit. But it seems to me that uh, the Great Awakening had a lot of strange occurrences that happened in it that aren't talked about too much. Could, can you share a little bit about that? Well, there was a lot of... I think it, it's, a, it's a mindset. The Presbyterian church is famous for being rather serious mm -hmm. <laughs> and, 
certainly not uh, charismatic in any fashion form. It's it's almost a joke, uh, but the, the, they do all right. You know, but the thing is, the trouble with organized religion is they they sort of rule out the supernatural. Mm. And they could when when God does something amazing, it's not even in their mindset. I mean, what are you talking about? The, the transformation of the heart through salvation is a supernatural event, and the Holy Spirit indwelling. You know, but the, it's it's alien to some people. They try to make it more rational mm-hmm. and, and don't allow it to go in, and that's that's a problem with mainline denominations. They they they, they rule out the supernatural. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yet their very foundation is supernatural. So yeah. one of the things that I wrote down as listening to is. We need courage if we want to be part of a great awakening, because we're going to get persecuted from inside and without. You told me in a, an email that there are four assassination attempts on the life of Whitfield, and today you shared yes. with us that the, it was ministers that opposed him as much as anybody. That is correct. So that's. Uh, are you ready for that? Do you feel ready for that? Um. Nobody's really ready for persecution, <laughs> but God has made sure very clearly in the Beatitudes, as I was indicating, a separate email, you know, he talks, you talk about the Beatitudes and everybody gets all gushy about it and Pollyannish, all oh, the peacemaker and all the, you know, poor in spirit. And then right afterward, Jesus says, you are going to get persecuted mm-hmm. for standing for the Lord. And he doesn't, he doesn't delay it's right in there. Mm-hmm. It's part of the package. And uh, when you try to conform with the world, then you're going to you're just going to lose, and Satan wins. Mm-hmm. So, what is your expectations for the years ahead, the the next few years, Jerry? Do you see us at the beginning of a great awakening? And I guess we didn't really cover this uh, yet. Like, what is? Why would we want it? Why would we want an awake a great awakening? What do you think would be the effect of a great awakening? On America, um, that's the real debate that's going on here in America today. Uh, we have one about a forty-five percent of the population is totally non-God, and and that's a real problem in America because our country is founded on. The fact that our Bill of Rights, our rights, are based on God. And the whole idea that we are uh, to be under him and and to obey the law is 45% of the population is rejecting it. And then you have another group that just wants to go on and just go on in life in total disregard of God. And that's the group that that uh, needs to come and understand that if if America is doomed unless we understand the very fundamental foundations of our country, we're so different than any other nation in, on the planet because we have said that our rights come from God, and it's right in our founding documents. If we if a large portion of the population rejects that, then we're in trouble. So a great awakening would wake us up to the fact that. Our rights do come from God, and we and you have to stand for it, mm. and uh, you're going to get persecuted. 
mm. if you do it that way. But that's the way it has to be, because that is what our whole country is founded for. So does the does the next great awakening begin in the world or in the church? In the church. Oh, without a church. In the church. Can you give us maybe a few practical ideas that you think, you know, practice these things, uh, think this way, um, you know, make this change? What are some practical steps that we could do that would kind of help us move into agreement with God for a great awakening? Uh, I think, of course, I'm I'm biased because I'm into big into history, but uh, the Lord is big into history. He told the Jewish people to remind every child and every one in the family what had God had done in bringing out Israel from from Egypt, and it, that's history. Hmm. And he, he kept reinforce it, reinforce it, reinforce it. Our real key here is to bring up history. The reason why Whitfield's been forgotten is because people forgot their history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd be doing tours left and right if people knew about Whitfield. They're, he's just now beginning to be recognized. And it's, it's like, wow. <laughs> yeah. He's been away for, 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 for almost a, a century. Mm. And that's very odd. And now people are beginning to recognize how important he was to America. And so history is a very important thing. And, of course, the central part is to realize that that the first base, Americans like to do sports illustrations, but the first base is salvation. Mm -hmm. You go to many, many churches, they'll, they'll talk about the religion and they'll talk about being close to God and talking about all the different things that are in the scriptures. But when it comes to salvation by grace, it hardly comes up. It's true. Some of the mainline denominations try to, try to explain away. The, they don't like you using the word born again. Oh, no, no. It, it says right in there. That means born from above. But look, listen, Nicodemus knew right away. Talking about how I have to go back into my, into the, into my, uh, uh, into the womb to be born again. He knew right away what he was talking about. It's a new birth. It's a new creation. Hmm. And if you don't get a new creation, all the other religious stuff is just emptiness. Amen. Amen. There's no power behind it. And and Jesus said, if you, without me, you can do nothing. So that means that you have to have the Holy Spirit in control or you're not going to be able to accomplish anything. Mm-hmm. And so that's extremely important. Amen. Amen. When I do a tour, when I do a tour on a practical basis, I have several people in the church come together and we pray about it that I get out of the way so that the Holy Spirit will actually come through me and speak through me and control the whole situation. Mm. And they keep them safe because that's an old building. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so it, it, and it has been, it's just been amazing what God will do. Mm. Well, that's awesome. Well, Jerry, I really appreciate your time and I'd love to stay in touch just to I believe we are living at the beginning of the next great awakening. I believe it's already starting. And uh, so, and I fully plan on being part of it. Um, I'm already seeing, already seeing things um, that I have not seen before in my lifetime of casting out demons and healings and things like that. So I'm excited. I'd love to stay in touch and just uh, to see, as Peter Marshall said, uh, you know, from uh, 
from sea to shining sea no there was from the uh oh darn that was a great that was a great thing I, i'm totally blanking on the title but from, oh, no. from one coast to another revival amen